0: <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. How you guys doing today? Good. Hey, I'm, I'm going to say right off the bat that I am pumped, absolutely pumped, about 2012. I think it's going to be one of the best years that I've personally seen in my life and that, our, that our, our church is going to see. I honestly cannot wait to see what God is going to do in my life, what he's going to do in my family's life, what he's going to do in your life, and in the life of our church. It's going to be the best. So buckle your seatbelts and get ready to go. And if I'm honest for just a second, I am 100% committed to getting rid of some people who have been major butts in my life. Greg, where are you at? See, he took a shot at me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but honestly, when, when I look at my life in the way that I've kind of viewed my life, viewed God, viewed my, my family, over this last year, I kind of feel like I've been holding back a bit. Maybe I've not been experiencing the best life that God intended for me. And it's kind of got me, as I'm looking forward to 2012, it's got me reflecting a bit on 2011 and some of the challenges I faced and and how some of those experiences, the, the things I experienced in 2011, are really going to shape how I approach and engage 2012. And so if it's okay this morning, what I would like to do is talk to you about three specific things that happened in my life that really had a major impact on me. And I want to talk a little bit about how God, or how I felt God, was teaching me through those, as well as, maybe we can take a look and see if there's a learning from God that we can apply to your life as well. So, The first thing that that happened to me that really had a major impact actually happened about two weeks ago. My son, Cayman, who's nine years old, punched a kid in the face. And now I know his great-grandparents and grandparents are in the room today, so don't be alarmed. I'm not a bad dad. Um, Simply what happened was I coach his basketball team. This is a fourth-grade basketball team. This is not your typical fourth grade basketball team. See, in Monroe School District, there's an A team, which are the great players. There's a B team, which are the kind of great players. And there is my team, which is the C team, which is kind of the guys nobody wanted. (laughs) So I get an email after tryouts happen saying, hey, Nate, we would love for you to coach. And I said, awesome, I'm in. All right, well, we've got these kids for you who nobody else wanted, so you can coach them. And so, very rarely, I'm just kind of setting the stage for you, very rarely at practice do you see anything that's, that's good. You see a lot of kids, <laughs> I'm just being honest, you, you'll see things at this practice like kids hugging each other, you'll see kids rolling on the ground, you'll see kids crying um, for no apparent reason, uh, you'll see kids, like, arguing with each other, encouraging, I mean, you see the whole gamut. And Suzanne and I, up uh, through the first nine years that came in his life, have, have tried to do a really good job of raising him to be a polite kid. We want him to be respectful, we want him to be smart, we want him to follow Jesus, we want him to do all these things. And so, we've raised him that way. And so, we're having this practice, and everything went great in the practice. And so, I decided, you know what, let's reward these guys. Let's play a little three-on-three scrimmage because we've only got six players. So, we're playing three-on-three full-court basketball. And this is what happens. Cayman, who's not real aggressive, as I said before, gets the ball and he turns around. And this other kid who's really aggressive steals the ball from him. And so Cayman gets a little frustrated and he looks at me to call a foul, and I didn't call a foul. And so this happens two more times in a row. And Cayman looks at me just like beside himself. And he says, Dad, are you kidding me right now? You're not going to call a foul! And I doing like any loving father and good coach would do. I'm like, suck it up, bro. Run down the other end of the court. Are you kidding me right now? (laughs) I know. So the the fourth time down the floor, he comes down the floor and he gets the ball, right? And he turns and he's like, nobody's taking this ball from me. And he turns and he shoots the ball and David just creams him. I mean, fouls him like the worst foul you probably have ever seen in your life. And what did I do? I just turned my head the other way. Didn't call it. I was expecting him to just suck it up. He goes from, like, normal kid to, like, I'm going to kill somebody right now, kid. He's like, Dad, you've got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. You've got to call foul. And I'm like, no foul, man, no foul. Just go down the other end of the court. No big deal. He goes, oh, oh, I see how it is. I see how it is. And I'm like, yeah, just right. You see how it is. <laughs> So he runs down the floor. He beats everybody down the floor, which is a miracle in itself. <laughs> this is what I see. David comes running down the floor. He came and does this. I'm like, what the crap? He throws his leg up trying to trip David. And I'm like, Cayman, what are you doing? <laughs> and he just like turns his head and doesn't look at me. So the place starts to develop. And out of the corner of my eye, I see my nine-year-old son who we've raised to be gentle and kind and loving and caring. I see him ball up his fist and take matters into his own hand. He balls his fist up. He hits David as hard as he can in the face when David wasn't looking. And so David falls to the ground, holding his face, and I lose it. Like zero to 60 lose it, which if you know me, that is kind of my style. I lost it. I'm like, get out! Get out of practice, right? Go! I, don't even get. I, I had some words I wanted to say, but I couldn't. So I came out of practice, and a couple minutes later, I look up after like, making sure David was okay, and I realize there must be 20 parents in the gym that weren't there before this happened. And I started evaluating oh my gosh, how must I look? Oh my gosh, Cayman has made me look awful. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And so I call Cayman over to the sidelines. We huddle everybody up. Cayman's sitting away. We huddle everybody up. You know, we do our hey, great practice, blah blah blah. One two three, Hornet Pride. It breaks, and I realize I haven't even invited Cayman to be in that huddle. And so I I tell him, you know, get your coat, put your pants on, change your shoes, take your goggles off, and get in the car. And so I began to give Cayman the silent treatment. Because that's what a good dad would do, right? That's what a good parent would do. So the whole way home, I don't even talk to him. I don't even want to see him. I'm so mad. So we get out of the car, and I'm like, go to your room and sit on your bed. And he goes to his room, and he sits on his bed, and I go in, and I begin to just verbally tear him down. And to which he gives me the appropriate response and verbally tears me down, And then I spank him because I'm overreacting. And I leave the room in tears, and Cayman is crying, and I shut his door, and I feel like the worst parent in the world. So I go to the living room, and I'm talking to Suzanne, and she's like, You have to go talk to him. I'm like, I know. I don't know what I'm going to say. And I make my way back to Cayman's room. And I open the door and he won't hardly make eye contact with me. And so I sit down on the bed and I'm like, see, dude, I love you. And I think I owe you an apology because I think I may have overreacted quite a bit. I said, can we just talk about what happened and see if we can't make some sense out of this whole, what I consider to be a mess. So Cayman and I start having a conversation about what happened in practice. And he began to tell me that he was upset because he felt like I was being unfair to him. And back and forth, and we ended up on the subject of Jesus. And I began to ask him questions to just find out what was going through his mind and why he did it and why he doesn't think he should do it and how Jesus feels about that. And I began to hear him say things like this. He says, Dad, you know, I probably did not make the best choice. And then he says, something to affect, the, and Dad, I probably shouldn't have done that because I wouldn't be happy and I wouldn't like that if David would have done that to me. And then it hits me, what just happened in my house. I realized at that moment that There's no one in my son's life that's more influential than me as a parent. And as I began to think about our church, I realized that there's no parent, there's no one more influential than a parent in a child's life. But you can't do it alone. You see, while I was caught up in the emotion of how it made me look as a dad and how I felt emotionally as a dad, I lost sight of God in all of it. And what came and did in our conversation when he said, you know what, Dad, I didn't make the wise choice. You know what, Dad, I didn't treat him the way I wanted to be treated, was he recited two out of the three basic truths that we teach our kids here at this church from age kindergarten to fourth grade. And so the adults who have been teaching him in our children's program have been making an impact on his life that I didn't even realize until that moment came. And, and then I, I started thinking, I said, you know what, that, that's exactly right. I 100% wholesale believe that two influences combined can make a greater impact on a child's life than one of them standing alone. And then I realized what my mom and dad did for me when I was younger. See, my mom and dad—they sat my coaches, my basketball coaches, down at the beginning of every season, and they said, "Hey, you know, coach, I just—we just want you to know what our priority priorities are for our family." And uh, Nathan won't be attending any practices on Wednesdays or Sundays because that's church day. And we honor God with our family. So if you have practices on those days, we just wanted to be clear that he won't be there. See, my parents, although I don't know if they, like, would put that language, like, oh, we got it, that someone needed to be in your life outside of us. But by their actions, they got that. They got that. No one would be more influential in my life than them as a parent, but that they could not do it all by themselves. So They surrounded me with people who would encourage me, love me, build Jesus into me, teach me truths, and teach me the Bible. About a day later, I was doing my devotion time, and Ephesians 6, 4, I was reading in, in Ephesians, and, and Paul says here, and it just I'm like, are you kidding me? Right now it says, fathers, and you can... Take fathers out and just put parents. Do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And he says it this way in Colossians. He says, Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. See, if we think about who we're raising, we're not, I don't think, raising kids. I think we're raising adults. Like my nine-year-old son, nine years from now, will be 18. And he will be an adult. And my influence in his life will be very limited at that point. So I need to leverage everything I can now. I need to put, like, all my chips on him and influencing him and surrounding him with people that will influence him in the right way. And when I, when I start thinking about him as an adult, I start making different decisions in how I treat him, how I have conversations with him, And I start thinking, all right, how do I want him to think through the first time he sits in his college dorm room at 18 years old and his buddies invite him to a keg party? Do I want him to make a decision based on fear and guilt? Or do I want him to make the decision based out of his love for his Savior? And that starts to impact my decisions. And so what I realized this year with Cayman was that I probably wasn't spending enough one-on-one time with him. And so for the last few months, I've dedicated one hour of my week, which is not a ton, but it's a dedicated one-on-one, no Suzanne, just me and Cayman, not playing video games, but we go to dinner, and then we usually do something that he wants to do together. Why am I doing that? I'm doing that because I want to leverage my personal influence as a parent in his life. I want to have community with him. I want to have conversations with him that only I can have. I want him to know that I care about him, not just when he does good, and that I'm not just going to discipline him when he does bad, but I'm interested in every aspect of his life. And I would venture to say today, in this room we have some parents who probably haven't spent one-on-one alone time with your child since they were six months old and you had to get up in the middle of the night and rock them and feed them. But the good news is, this is a new year. (laughs) And so if if you're like me, if you carry your cell phone in your pocket everywhere you go and you feel like you can't live without it, right now might be a great time for you as a parent to pull your phone out, click on your calendar, and say, you know what? I am going to schedule at least an hour with my child this year to spend with them one-on-one. Maybe you're a parent in the room today and your relationship with your child looks more like a friendship. And what you've found is you've traded in some potential conflict from time to time so that your kids don't get mad at you. You've actually found yourself from time to time taking and putting more uh, investment, making major financial investments, making major um, time investments into what I would call shallow things that don't last forever, like sports. like dance, like cheerleading, like art, like music. And so maybe maybe this year you need to start the year off as a parent saying, you know what, I'm going to make an investment in what's right for my kid. I'm getting them to church as much as humanly possible. And now I know some, some people right now just checked off and said, yeah, here he goes, promoting Four Corners. I don't care. See, the most important thing in your child's life is having another adult building Jesus and speaking Jesus' truth and the truth of the Bible into their life. If that's here, that's awesome. Because I think this is the best place in Westchester and Cincinnati. But if it's not here, find a place that you can plug your kids in and have other adults speaking into their life. Because there's no one, no one more influential Influential in your child's life than you as a parent, but you cannot do it alone. The second thing that really impacted me happened the day after Cameron punches this, this kid in the face. I get a call at the office from my wife, and she says, Hey, I've fallen at work, missed a step, I think I sprained my ankle or broke it. To which I said, Well, are you okay? And she says, Well, no, <laughs> fell. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> Give me a bye here. <laughs> so I said, well, can you walk? Can you drive? Do I need to come get you? She says, I think you need to come get me, but I don't want to interrupt your day, which is her total typical response. And so I said, no, I'm coming to get you. So I left the office and drove to Dayton to pick her up. The Security escorts me up to her, to her um, desk. And she's sitting there in a the wheelchair with her leg propped up looking pitiful. And I feel like awful for her. So we wheel her out we put her in the, in the truck, and I'm like, well, what do we need to do? She goes, we probably should take me to the doctor. I said, okay, let's take you to the doctor. We go to the doctor's office, and we go to our family doctor, which won't see her because it happened at work. So they send us to another office. We go there. The doctor, they put her in a the room. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, her sock is on still. So they take her boot off, and they leave her sock, and they don't even look at her ankle. He's like, yeah, it's probably a sprain. And he's like, maybe we should do some x-rays. So they do x-rays, no break. It probably is a sprain. To which they say, all right, well, we're going to send you home. We want to see you back here in a few days. So here's an air cast. They literally hand her an air cast. And they say, here are your crutches. They literally hand her two crutches. They don't put the air cast on. They don't show her how to put the air cast on. They don't adjust her crutches. If you know me, I do not like that type of service. (laughs) Like, I want my wife treated like she is the queen that she is. I want her treated like the best. And so I put her in the car, and I'm fussing. I'm upset because they treated her bad, and we drop her prescription off, and we take her home, and I help her up in the house, to which I think she falls a couple times almost face first into the ground because she can't walk on the crutches. It was a mess. We get into the house. She sits on the couch, and I said, all right, what can I get you? To which she starts giving me a list of things that she needs me to do. If you know me, you know that I'm spoiled at my house. Like, I don't usually have to do anything. My wife takes care of it. Amen. My wife takes care of everything for me. So she's like, I need ice. I need water. I need something to eat. No, I don't need something to eat. I'm not hungry. I need Advil. I need that. I'm like, all right, I'm doing this, doing this, doing this. She's like, now go get my medicine. I go get her medicine. I come back. And I'm like, I'm done. I can sit down. And she's like, hey, I'm hungry. I'm like, all right, I'm fixing some food. And I'm like, crap, i got to cook. What the heck? So I go, <laughs> go fix her some food, and I come back and sit down. And she's like, we're probably going to need towels done and laundry needs done. And I'm like, here we go. It sets into a series of events that I'm feeling, like, overwhelmed. Here's what, here's what I realized. I realized that Suzanne and I, almost seven years ago, got married. It'll be seven years this June. When I first started asking her out, it was four times before she would even date me. She shot me down four times. I was just trying to be her friend. I didn't even want to have a romantic relationship with her at this point. I'm just like, hey, be my friend. And so now that I finally got her to go out with me and now she's married to me, I think I fall into all three of these next categories. And if you're a spouse in this room, if you're married in this room, you can probably relate with what I'm about to say. There are times in my marriage with Suzanne where I feel like we've been standing back to back. We've almost been enemies at times. We both have our own set of ideas and things that we want, and we're just kind of going our own direction. There's a lot of our life that we've spent together that's spent shoulder to shoulder. We've been standing next to each other doing things. We go to work. We go to work to provide money, For our family, so we can have food and nice things and a house and take trips. We serve at the church together, shoulder to shoulder. I start thinking about our church. We've got people in this room that they're entrepreneurs, they do business side to side together. Right? You guys remodel your homes shoulder to shoulder together. Some of you are at the place where you're taking care of your, your parents who are who are getting up in age and you're shoulder to shoulder doing life together. And then I start thinking about what shoulder-to-shoulder really is. Like, is it really that bad? I'm like, well, no, it's not that bad. And I truly believe that marriage has to have a lot of shoulder-to-shoulder. But what God intends for marriage is face-to-face. It's what we call friendship. And what I realized very quickly was that Suzanne was my friend. Because running around, taking orders from her, and doing things for her, like I do right now, it doesn't feel very loving to me. But I'll do anything for my friend. Anything. And so, as I began to think about the Bible, a story came to mind from the Song of Solomon, where the young girl is writing to Solomon, and she says, he is my lover, he is my friend. He is my lover, he is my friend. I think this is a, an excellent definition of marriage. And so, if you're married in the room today, if I can give you one thing this next year to focus on, it would be focus on friendship with your spouse. Focus on friendship with your spouse. You see, friendship, in my opinion, takes time to develop. But I think we would all agree it makes our, our love relationship more special and deep. So I just ask you today how is your friendship with your wife, or with your spouse, or with your husband? How is your friendship with your spouse? See, marriage is not only about friendship. If you don't get anything in your spouse today, get this. Marriage is not only about friendship, but friendship changes everything about the marriage. The third thing I, I learned this year, and it was kind of hard to take, it was a very humbling experience, is I realized I was doing my job at this church all wrong. I realized that I'd been hired a year and a half to, uh, ago to be the student pastor at this church. And I came in with guns blazing, you know, trying to do what I thought the Lord had called me to do. And I find myself a year and a half in the ministry now in a, in a transition, which is only from God, that has put me in a, in a position where I'm the family pastor here. And over the last several months, we've been going through a, a discovery period as a staff trying to define and figure out what is the role of a pastor? What is the role of a pastor in our church? You know what? Let's scratch that. What's the role of a pastor in general? And as we started to press into those issues and talk through them in staff meeting and have one-on-one meetings about what we were doing and how we were approaching our job and how we were caring for the people God had entrusted us with, I began to realize that I approached ministry almost like a Western, old Western gunslinger. I had a couple guns on my side, and I would whip them out and then just start pow, 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 trying to take care of all kinds of stuff. I would find myself running over here and putting out a fire and trying to encourage somebody over here and loving somebody, and oh my gosh, somebody just had a baby. We need to get meals. We need, and there's like all kinds of activities that I'm doing. And they, in my mind, they're not linking together. I'm like, why am I even doing all of this? This just seems like I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off sometimes. The reason being was I, I didn't have the one unified truth that drives those activities. This is good. This is good. I didn't realize that in the Bible, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, it gives me the exact prescription of what I should be doing as a pastor. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. See, this verse, along with Pastor Greg, I'm going to brag on him for just a second, along with Pastor Greg's Amazing insight and leadership brought me great clarity over the last few months on what it means to be a pastor. And here it is. My purpose as a pastor is to help people follow Jesus. That's it. That's what I was made for. That's what I was called to do. And everything that I do points to helping people Follow Jesus. See, I found through this discovery process that the, that the best, most effective way for me to do that is to help people find the, this is the key word, dream that God has for their life. If you haven't realized it, He has a dream for you. This is good news. He has a dream that's probably better than anything you ever dreamed. I'm living proof. This is not just the call or the job of a pastor. This is what I love so much because a lot of times when we talk about what a pastor should do, people are like, yep, mm -hmm, mm-hmm, you got that right. They better be doing that. This is the call for everyone who follows Jesus. This is the call for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to help other people follow Jesus. See, Jesus' first followers were the disciples, 12. And right before Jesus left this earth, In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says to his disciples, go and make disciples. Teach them to follow me. Teach them to obey my law. Oh, don't forget, I'm with you always. Always. I call this putting feet to my faith. It means that I'm believing I'm actually going to get up and I'm going to walk this sucker out. I'm going to do everything within my power to help others follow Jesus. I believe that is your call today. This new year, when you're when you're writing down goals and you're writing down things you want to accomplish, what if one of those goals was you know, I'm going to help somebody this year. I'm going to just find one person. I'm going to help them follow Jesus. That may be the most important said all year. It, I think it trumps everything. It's your call. See, when you begin using God's gifts, talents, and passions to further his plan, you'll know why you were created, And you'll know what your life's purpose is. So do me a favor. Grab your Connect card. Let's take some next bold steps together. I love the sound of the pins clicking. That's awesome. If you are here today and you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior then I would like to give you the opportunity today by checking box A. And if you check that box, the staff and myself and we will follow up with you this week and, and have a conversation and, and give you some more material that will help that journey. Because it's a journey. And it's an amazing one. If you've accepted Jesus today, but you've not been baptized yet, then your next step in your walk would be Getting baptized. Basically your public confession, your your coming out party, saying, yo, what up? I'm with Jesus. That's an amazing step. So you can can take that step today and we'll be in touch with you. Check next box B. Box C, this is for all the parents in the room. Box C, I will bring my kids to church as much as humanly possible this year. I will make church a priority in my kid's life. Next bold step D. I'm going to do a once a month date night with my spouse. I'm going to commit. Once a month, I'm going on a date. Just me and my spouse. No kids, no nothing. That's what I'm doing. And next step E, which is my favorite one. I want to discover my destiny. Next week, Pastor Ben's going to kick off, I think, what may be the most important series we've ever done at Four Corners. If you're not sure what your destiny is, you're not even sure how to find that destiny, you need to make sure you are here next week. Check box E. If you want to discover your destiny. Do me a favor, bow your heads with me, and let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, for your truth, for your promises, for this new year where we get to take a step towards you, a a fresh start. Maybe it's spending more time with our kids, reorganizing our priorities with our kids. Maybe it's being friends with our spouse. Maybe it's walking out what you've called us to do, which is follow you, but help other people follow you. In everything we do this year, Jesus, help us keep our eyes focused on you. Help us keep you at the center, at the core of everything we do. God, I love you, I thank you, and I praise you in your name, amen.